You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. We spent the last several weeks looking at different types of Old Testament stories, events, and characters, and looking at them and seeing how they point us to Jesus in the Old Testament. I wanted, to, I, I wanted to do this so that we would get a clear understanding of the fact that the Bible is God's revelation about his salvation through Jesus. Not only that, but we can only fully enjoy the under, understanding the, old, the New Testament if we understand and know what happened in the Old Testament. From be, the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the story of, of the Bible tells us about the story of redemption. The story of God saving his people. The story of God saving his people from themselves. The story of God reuniting himself to the creation that rejected him. The story of God's mercy, his grace, and his peace. The story of reconciliation between a holy God and a rebellious creation. And for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at finding Jesus in the prophets of the Old Testament. Prophecy, if you don't know, is a style of literature that is used primarily in the Old Testament. It can be a little bit difficult to understand, but I want to give you just kind of the gist of it. So Israel, God's people, are either in trouble or about to be in trouble because of their rebellion against God and his commands. God then raises up a man to proclaim to them the error of their ways. This man is called a prophet. God reveals to this prophet why they are in this situation, how long they're going to be in that situation, and how God is going to deliver the people from the mess that they find themselves in. This man calls them to repent and turn back to God. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. They reject his call to repentance. Many times these prophets are speaking about how God is going to deliver them from the situation that they find themselves in. Sometimes, this isn't the case for today's scripture, God reveals how he's going to bring about something new, something more amazing, someone more amazing than they could ever imagine. Someone who is going to restore them, not simply as a nation, but those who can be made whole, those who can be made into the image of God, those who can be restored. God is going to send a servant to restore what is broken. So what is a servant going to look like? Well, we'll look at it in just a second. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah 42. And as you open up to Isaiah 42, I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, I pray that as we, we uh, read your scripture, Lord, that you would illuminate it for us, that you would touch our hearts and our minds and our souls, that you would remind us of how holy and awesome you are and what a gracious gift you have given to us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. This is what we read. This is my servant. I will strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout to make his or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will be He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coast and the islands will wait for his instruction. So the first thing we see is God's 
chosen servant. To begin this, we need to know that God calls different people throughout the Old Testament his servant. Abraham was called his servant. Moses was called his servant. David is called his servant. In fact, in this chapter, the chapter right before this one, he calls Israel his servant. And then later in this chapter, he calls Israel his servant again, the people of God his servant. So we need to understand that God chooses servants throughout the Old Testament. But we have to also understand the context in which they are chosen. The context in this chosen is that this servant has not yet come. This is a promise of a servant to come. This servant is holy and completely different from every servant that's been used by servant that's been used by God before. Almost as if he's a culmination of everything that they had hoped for, they had longed for, and they had prayed for. Like he is the true servant that will accomplish all the other, what all the other servants could not accomplish. Now this servant is Jesus. Surprise, right? This is Jesus. And we know this because this exact passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, that it is talking about Jesus. So now what do we know about this servant in Isaiah 42? First, we know that he is a servant. And what does it mean to be a servant? It means that he is going to do the will of the one he has come to serve. All those other servants that we talked about, Moses and Abraham and even Israel as a nation, they did their will and God's will. They didn't just focus on God's will. So a lot of times they departed from God's will to do their own will. They all ended up falling short. They all ended up sinning. They all ended up trying to mix their will with God's will together, and it created catastrophe. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. So Jesus' focus and primary goal is to do the will of the Father. He is going to be the perfect servant of God. He came to do that which God has instructed him to do. So in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus replied, Truly, I tell, to you, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So the Father and the Son are in perfect unity and harmony with one another, doing the same will, accomplishing the same goal. And therefore, Jesus can serve the Father perfectly. That's why God is sending Jesus to accomplish his will, because humanity will always mess it up. People always mess it up. There needed to be a perfectly obedient servant. And that could only be accomplished by God himself in human flesh. And that's who we find in Jesus Christ. We also see in this passage that the servant is strengthened by God. And this is a strength outside of human capability. It's a supernatural strength. There are times in the Old Testament when God's Spirit comes and aids his servants but this will be different. All of this power and all of the will that the servant does will be because of God's power. And this is self-evident because Jesus is God. And obviously he's strengthened by God because he is God. So he is going to come in the spirit of God. Jesus was chosen from the beginning of time to be God's servant. And he would be the one that would restore creation to its proper form. There was never a plan B. From the beginning of creation, God, Jesus was chosen to set right what people had broken. We also see that God is going to delight in this servant. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we read this, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. 
with whom I am well pleased. The Father delighting in his Son. The Father sends Jesus, strengthens Jesus, and delights in Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus is this chosen servant. Now, this servant has a mission to complete. When he gets here, what is the mission? He tells us three times in this passage to bring justice to the nations. Now, unfortunately for us, we have a very narrow view on what justice looks like. We tend to think justice is usually someone getting what's coming to them. We think about justice, we think about retributive justice. You did something wrong, you need to pay for it. You need to be punished. And justice is not served if you're not penalized by the wrong that you did. And sometimes, unfortunately, our justice is based on our own feelings, our own circumstances, our own upbringings. So our idea of justice is usually subjective, according to ourselves, rather than objective, according to some outside truth. On the other hand, God's idea of justice is always objective. Rather than being strictly punitive, God's justice moves toward restoration, moves towards restoring. God is in the business of justice, but God's idea of justice is different than our idea of justice. Sure, he's going to repay evil with evil, but justice that he seeks is more than retribution. He is interested in restoration. Not only that, but God's justice is objective, meaning that it is based on what he declares to be right and wrong. And he can do that because he is the standard against which everything else is measured. God's justice is found in his perfect, holy, and incorruptible character. So God's justice wants to restore what is broken. It wants to heal the human heart. It wants God's justice is grace-filled. God's justice offers an avenue for forgiveness. No matter how wrong or how bad we are, God offers forgiveness if we turn to him. And this is what Isaiah is writing about in these four verses. He is writing about the perfect servant who has come to fix what is broken and provide hope for the hopeless. People can reject his forgiveness. They can reject the salvation that is offered to them, and they will be held accountable for violating God's law. Or they can accept the grace that is given through Jesus' sacrifice. Praise the Lord that we have a God that would rather restore us than wipe us out. That we have a God who loves us. Because ultimately we, are, we deserve the worst because we are the worst. But God is gracious and God is kind. He endures our rebellion and offers us forgiveness. And that forgiveness can only be extended to us because of Jesus. Jesus, the perfect servant and the perfect sacrifice. You see, restoration and retribution were met on the cross when Jesus sacrificed himself for us. The next thing I want us to notice about this description about the servant is found in verse 2. It says this, He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. Jesus did not come as a tyrant. He didn't come with bravado. Unlike the kings and the rulers, he will not be violent or aggressive. He establishes his kingdom through service and through humility. His rulership is upside down when compared to the world's description of strength and might. See, Jesus came in power, but he wasn't loud and he wasn't boisterous about his power. Instead, his very presence makes him known. His presence radiates goodness, holiness, and rightness. He is a very embodiment of patient endurance, humility, and steadfastness. 
He doesn't need to overcompensate with swagger because he has a holy swagger that he walks with. He doesn't need to prove to you how big he is or how powerful he is or how mighty he is because his very presence emanates that reality. People notice Jesus not because of loud rebellion or a cocky attitude or a braggadocious claims. They noticed him because of his willingness to love, to teach the truth, and to have compassion, show mercy, and extend grace. One of the characteristics of those who want to establish their own kingdom is that they are willing to crush the weak, crush the sick, the hurting, the outcast, in order to get ahead. But this isn't so for Jesus. In verse 3, we read that he will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. I want you to think about it for just a moment. A bruised reed and a smoldering wick. These are descriptions of something at its most vulnerable, that a stiff breeze would break that reed or that would blow out that wick. This is meant to describe people that when they are at their absolute lowest. These are the people who feel crushed and overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by society, by the troubles of this world, that their spirits are destroyed, that their hearts ache, that all hope seems lost those who had just lost a loved one, those who receive a troubling diagnosis, those who are on the verge of a mental breakdown, that anxiety rules their hearts and their mind. These people are contemplating suicide. They feel isolated. They feel alone. They feel like nobody loves and cares for them. They feel like they are life's biggest disappointment. But this servant is going to show up and he's going to show the hurting, the outcast, the downtrodden, those who feel like giving up. He's going to show them love, compassion, and mercy. And Jesus does just that. He shows compassion. He shows love. And he shows mercy to you when you are at your lowest. A bruised reed and a smoldering wick. They're also used to represent those who are broken and abused, those who are viewed by society as worthless and unlovable, those who are without any hope. And he isn't going to come to destroy the weak or the hurting, but he's going to restore them. He isn't coming to trample the depressed, to trample the lowly, but to bring them hope. He implements his justice by caring for the oppressed and the suffering. When you are suffering, he offers you hope. When you are depressed, he offers you hope. When you are at the end of your rope, he extends his hand and he offers you hope. I heard one guy put it this way, no one is unworthy of help. No one will be treated harshly or as unimportant and expendable to Jesus. He cares about those who are outcast and hurting because they are people. They are valuable to him because they are his creation. They are valuable to him because he loves them. He cares for the broken. He cares for the helpless. He comes in meekness and love to bring justice to those crushed by injustices. He comes to put right all that is wrong. He does this through comfort. He does this through care, through love and compassion. When you are about to break, Jesus wants to comfort you. You're not just a number. You're not a nameless face. You are cherished and loved by the one true king. 
And I know that we have a lot of people in our church and in our families and in our community that are sick, that are broken, that are hurting. But I want you to know that we have a Savior that loves us, that sees us, that knows us. He doesn't want to break us. He doesn't want to take advantage of us. He wants to hold us. Jesus doesn't want to break the bruised reed. Rather, he wants to hold it and stand near to it and bring it close until it heals itself, until it is restored. He doesn't want to blow out the wick. Rather, he cusps it in his hands and he stokes the flame to bring back back its strength. When we are at our lowest, Jesus is there for us. He is calling out to us to trust him. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we read this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and I will find rest, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He wants to provide rest for the weary soul. He wants to take us and carry us along. He wants us to know that he is gentle, that he is humble, that he is kind. He also wants us to know that he sees us, He knows our struggles. He sympathizes with us. He weeps when we weep and he mourns when we mourn and he rejoices when we rejoice. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. And when the troubles of this world sneak into our lives, we can rest assured that he has overcome the world, that he is the conquering king, the overcomer who is humble in spirit and gentle in love. Isaiah 42.4, we read that he will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established his justice on earth. The coast and the islands wait for his instructions. Here's some of the best news. Jesus won't stop extending his love to people as long as they continue to accept him. He will not grow tired or discouraged until all have heard and responded to his message. Either they respond in faith or they respond in rejection. Jesus' love Mercy and grace are extended for all people at all times. It isn't limited to the elite few. It isn't reserved for a select number or a specific gender or a nationality or an ethnic group. God wants us to know that his mercy and his grace is for everybody. And we don't keep it to ourselves. We tell people. We're invited to join him in proclaiming this mission, proclaiming this grace to those in our lives. We are not only invited to join, we are commanded to join. It is our duty and our privilege to tell people about the love, the mercy, the grace that is found at the foot of the cross. We are to teach people about our Savior, to show them where grace is. And as we do that, people will respond and be transformed into a new creation. They will be restored by God's servant, Jesus Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9. This is what God the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who work on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and the light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to my idols. The events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur, 
So we see God's restoring servant. This section begins with recognition of who God is. He is the creator of all. He is the Lord over all. He is speaking to us. And when he is speaking as creator, as Lord, we should listen because he never minces words. He reminds us of his power. He reminds us of of his glory. He is a creator and he gives life and he brings justice and he sustains all things. We can't limit God no matter how hard we try. No matter how much we want to put him in a box, we cannot limit him. He gives breath and he gives life and spirit to all those who inhabit the earth. This establishes his care and compassion for people. He cares for them because he creates them. He cares for them because he sustains them. He provides life for them because he is the giver of life. He is the ruler of life, and he has sympathy for his creation. His sympathy and care for creation are why he wants to establish his justice on the earth. So why does this begin with God as creator and giver of life? Because what's going to happen next can only be done by one with immeasurable power. The restoration of creation can only be done by the one that created. So first we see that God talks to this servant, Jesus, again. That Jesus has been called and chosen for a righteous purpose. A purpose only accomplished by God himself. He will be a new covenant for the people. Now, language for covenants is important for us to understand. Covenants are established throughout the Old Testament. Covenants are similar to contracts. They're they're more than contracts, but just for all intents and purposes, they're like contracts. God deals with his people in covenants. Covenants that the people of Israel know about. And right now, in this passage, the Israelites are under the covenant of Moses, that is the law of Moses. They are stripped from their land and they live in captivity because they have disobeyed and they have rebelled against God's law. And that was one of the consequences for their disobedience is that they would lose the blessing, the blessing of land. But God is telling his servant that he is going to make him, Jesus, a new covenant for the people. This new covenant is told to Israel in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, and it says this, Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach this, teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And then this is fulfilled by Jesus at the Lord's Supper. If we read at Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, get this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus' blood is the new covenant, the establishment of the new covenant that God promised. Also in this passage from Jeremiah, it's quoted 
in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And then we follow it up with Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. And it says this, By saying a new covenant, he has declared the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. That old covenant is done away with, and the new covenant has come, the covenant of grace found in the sacrifice of Jesus. God is restoring our relationship to him, not through the blood of lambs and goats, but through the blood of his own son. That Jesus' covenant is better than the covenant of old. It's a covenant based on the perfect servant and not on the works of the people. Jesus is the one that binds us to God. He is the one that draws us near to God. He is the one that keeps us and he sustains us. We don't rely on ourselves. We rely on who Jesus is. And how is he going to establish this new covenant? He's going to establish it by being a light to the nation. Jesus sheds light on the darkness around us. He radiates the holiness and the righteousness of God. He draws people to himself as a moth is drawn to light. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read this about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows after me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Jesus illuminates the path for those who want to follow after him. He shows us how to get to God, how to love God, how to live for God, how to be obedient towards God. His light brings blessing. It brings guidance. It brings salvation to those who are his own. Aside from him, there is no way to the Father. There is no way to get restored outside of Jesus' light. He is the beacon pointing us to what is good, what is right, what is holy, and what is just. This new covenant is going to bring light into the dark world. God is committed, empowered, and purposeful in completing his promises. Jesus, the perfect servant, comes to fulfill the promises God has made. He is going to bring light and life into the darkest chambers of our hearts. He's going to shine that light on the evil of the world to expose its wickedness, to expose our own wickedness. He's going to show us that the light is come and to set us free from those, from our own bondage, our bondage to darkness. I heard one guy, or I read one guy's tweet, he says this, light exposes the truth. It reveals both beauty and horror, clean and filthy. Truth always calls what is exposed by its right name. That is the job of light, to expose the wrongs and to reveal the truth. And that's what Jesus does, exposes our sin exposes that we are broken, exposes that we are in need of transformation, that we are unholy, that we are wicked and unclean in the sight of God. That light shines on us and it shows us that we are stained by sin, whether it be the sin of pride, the sin of lust, the sin of greed, of selfishness, you name it, we're stained by it. But Jesus brings the light to expose us, to expose us for who we really are, for how we have failed, But it doesn't just show us how broken we are and how we need restoration. It reveals the way that we can be cleansed. It reveals the way to be cleansed, the way to be made right. 
reveals to us the truth of God's servant. Jesus came to set captives free. He came to establish his justice on the earth. He came to save those who are lost. He comes to restore, transform, and bring hope to those in the dungeon of despair. Jesus brings life to those who are dead, to those who are living in darkness. And how does Jesus testify by the light? about the light, by the works that he does. How he proves that he is who he says he is is by the works that are done through him. So he does miraculous works. Well, what kind of miraculous works is he going to do? He tells us he is going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to set prisoners free. And that he's going to bring those out of darkness into light. These are both physical actions and spiritual ones done by Jesus. In John chapter 9, we read about Jesus restoring sight to the blind man. And how does he do that? He spits in the dirt and he rubs mud on the eyes of the blind man. He restores him by using the dust of the earth to restore him, to make him whole. And this man, who was made whole, stated about Jesus in John chapter 9, verse 32 and 33. He says, throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. So Jesus opens this man's eyes physically. But that wasn't all. After this miraculous event, the man proclaimed that Jesus was Lord. He chose to follow Jesus. Not only was he made well physically, but he was made whole spiritually. When it comes to prisoners being set free and brought out of darkness, this is more of a spiritual metaphor. Jesus wants to set us free from sin. He wants to bring us out of the prison of sin and shame. Jesus tells us in John 8.34, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. We are bound to sin if we sin. And the bad news for all of us is that we all sin. We've all fallen short. We've all rebelled against God. We all try to make a name for ourselves. But Jesus is good, and he wants to set us free. So in John 8, 36, he says this, So if the Son sets you free, you will be really free. You can be free from sin. You can be free from bondage. In fact, that's the reason Jesus was come to the earth, to set us free, to free the captives from their bondage, to establish, his, establish God's justice on the earth. It's amazing that even as we rebel against a holy God, a righteous God, he offers us a way to be restored into a relationship with him. Praise God that he's merciful. Amen? That he's gracious. Isaiah 42, verses 8 through 9, it says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. Here's the reality. God deserves honor. He deserves our praise for what he has done. God is about God's business, God's glory, and God's mission. The mission began with Jesus in eternity past, and we are called and chosen to aid him in the mission going forward. When we become followers of Jesus, our affections should change, our hearts should be changed, and we should be, want to be about our Father's business. That's part of the restoration. So what is our Father's business? Salvation, redemption, justice, love, and his kingdom. He's about making people know that he is good 
that he is gracious, that he is loving, and that he is kind. And that's what we're to be about. When Jesus came, he inaugurated his kingdom, this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Father. And he saves us. And when he does, he saves us and he calls us a new creation, that we are now a part of that new kingdom. He brings new life to the broken creation. In this new life, we should partake in kingdom building, telling others about the good news of new life. The former things have gone away and the new things are here. We glorify God when we partake in his mission. When we proclaim the grace given us, we glorify the king. That is our calling and that is our mission. That is how we can help to spread hope to the hopeless. We restore the broken to help bring justice to God's people. People will not feel the fullness of hope, joy, and love, and peace outside of the good news of the gospel. So we are commissioned to tell people about it. We need to live out the mission. We need to let others know how the gospel and how Jesus has transformed us, that he has restored us. And when we do that, we are rejoicing in God's salvation. We should desire that others rejoice in his salvation too. In fact, he tells us in verses 10 through 13 that we should rejoice. Verse 10, it says this, Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea with all that fills it, you coast and islands and your inhabitants, let the desert and its cities shout. The settlements where Kedar dwells cry aloud. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them cry from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coast and the islands. The Lord advances like a warrior. He stirs up his zeal like a soldier. He shouts, he roars aloud, and he prevails over his enemies. We should rejoice in God's salvations. One of the things that I love to do often in my house or in the office, in my car, wherever. I like to bust out in song. You can ask Corey and the kids. I'll be walking around the house, cooking dinner, or I don't know, just sitting in my chair, and I just start singing about anything and everything. It's usually pretty poor lyrics, right? They're sometimes, but they're, they're silly, and I have fun with it. But I love to sing. I'm not great at it, but I love to do it. And God is telling us here that we should sing a new song because of his salvation. That we should sing a song because of his deliverance, because of his servant. We rejoice because of his mercy and his grace. That's one of the reasons that we gather together on Sundays is to praise God in song. Singing and rejoicing because of who God is and what he has done is an intricate part of our following after him. The Bible has a whole book of songs, right? We call it the book of Psalms. They are to be sung and used in praise and worship to God because God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. And one of the ways that we demonstrate that is through singing to him. You see, songs stir up something within our hearts and our minds. It stirs up our emotions. It helps us to focus, and it helps us to tell God how much we really love him, how much we really feel about him. So if you ask me, singing songs together is not an optional thing in the mornings, on Sunday mornings. It's something we should be doing. It's something we should be looking forward to. No matter how well we sing, we should be praising God for the good things that he's done in our lives. One commentator put it this way, the effect of the hymn, this specific hymn, is to involve the reader also in rendering praise to this great creating and redeeming God. 
who is far from being a distant theological construct, but who is even now worthy of all praise, the Lord, both first and last. This new song that we are to sing is to praise him for the new things that he has brought. A new covenant, a new life, new creation. And we sing in joy. We sing in celebration. We sing in gratitude. We honor God when we voice our praises to him. He is calling people to worship him from the middle of the desert to the highest mountaintops, from the middle of the jungle to the middle of the city, in small town America, here in Louise, Texas. He is calling all who have experienced his restoration to rejoice in him, to sing songs to him. And we rejoice because he is a warrior. We read this in verse 13, that he is a warrior. This is a callback to Exodus chapter 15. After God frees the people from bondage and slavery in Egypt, Moses composes and sing, Moses composes. Moses composes and sings a song about a mighty warrior God, who fights for his people, who conquers his enemies, who hears the cry of the oppressed, the downtrodden and depressed, and responds in grace and mercy. And this is why we sing. This is why we rejoice, because we have a God that fights for us. We have a God that bled for us. We have a God that stands victorious over our enemies, the greatest of which are sin and death. And he stands the victor. And our new song celebrates the lamb that was slain. The new song in Revelation 5 Verse 9, and they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. And you purchase people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. We sing a new song. So let me ask you, can you sing a new song to the Lord? Have you experienced his love, his mercy, and his grace? Do you have burdens that you need to take to Jesus? Are you overwhelmed, overstressed, exhausted? Do you feel broken? Do you feel hopeless? Jesus, God's perfect servant, came to bring you freedom, to bring you hope. And all you need to do is trust in him, to follow after him, and he will make you new. He will restore your heart. He will restore your soul. He will give you a new song to sing. And he is calling out to you. Will you answer him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the fact that you care about us. That you see us. That you hear us. That in our brokenness, you respond to us. That you came to give us a new hope. To put a new song in our mouths. That we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. We praise you because you are worthy of praise. You restore the broken. You comfort the hopeless. And we love you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.